Hello Podsters, welcome to a brand new show, Podchat. Today in our very first episode, we'll wander in the realm of physical sciences. Listen Neil and Shivam chat about pulsar timing arrays and detecting gravitational waves. Let's dive into their conversation. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, I am Neil Kolhe. I very recently graduated with a master's in physics with a specialization in astrophysics from St. Davis College, Mumbai. Uh, I am currently working uh, a research group called uh, the Indian Pulsar Timing Array. So, uh, you were born and brought up in Mumbai, right? No, I was not. No. I was born in Pune. Okay. I lived there till I was 10. I had my education till 4th standard there. And because of better job prospects, my parents were in Mumbai and uh, I have been here since I was 10. So, you are here since you were 10? Yeah. And uh, how were you as a child? Were you always fascinated by science? Um, I, I was always like very curious about random things, uh, not particularly about physics or astrophysics or anything of the sort. I always wanted to be a new kind of scientist every single day. I had a lot of encyclopedias growing up. I read okay. them a lot. And one day I wanted to be a chemist because, oh look, <laughs> shampoo or pani mix kya, oh, banta hai, nice chemicals, fun. <laughs> Uh, and the next day, oh, I, I maybe read an article about clouds or something and, oh look, the uh, the column in Nimbus clouds look really pretty. <laughs> so today I want to be a meteorologist. So, yeah. The, the the kind of, the physicist thing kind of uh, stuck rather late. Okay. I wanted to be a different kind of scientist every couple of months till it landed up to be physics and just stuck, I guess. So, but you were sure about that you want to become a scientist? No, not really, no. No? I was just into science. I, I would have been perfectly happy doing any job which let me explore things around science. Any curious job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think such an academic bite research wala job was like, you know, I don't think so. I understood what that is till like very late in life. Like, you know, what exactly does a professional scientist do? So, uh, it was just basically your curiosity. Yes. Of trying to find out stuff. Yeah, yeah. Out very, stuff very, very, very random stuff. I was like an extremely random child who, who, who got like weird fixations and fixated on certain ideas for days and days. Uh, I can I can come to feel that. I, I think every science starts with that. Hmm? As, a, as a really uh, curious person and then slowly figuring out what they really want to do in life. How are you in school? Uh, a, a very mixed bag. Um, I, I guess every single time uh, uh, my school had a parents-teacher meeting, the teachers always used to say to my parents that uh, you know, like, he can do a lot better if we don't understand why he isn't. Oh, and okay. that has always been my life till like a couple of months ago. Like, you know, <laughs> the teachers have not stopped saying that. I, I still don't know what this better is yet, but, you know, I guess I'm trying. Was it more like ki, uh, when people say, Dimaag to bahut hai, bas padhai nahi karta. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess, I guess, yeah. The, that, has, that has definitely been a thing. <laughs> yes. And uh, what was the reaction of your family? When you, when you told them that, yes, I want to do science. So, my, my family is like generally supportive of whatever I do. Uh, though, uh, so bo- both of them are, 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 have like science degrees. They never okay. used them though. So, my, my mother has a master's degree in chemistry. And she wanted to do research actually. But she never could because of certain uh, reasons. But, uh, and my dad has a BSc in electronics. Okay, and so both of them are from science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of them have like degrees in science. But... They uh, never like lit- uh, used them in their career as much. My mother was a teacher for like uh, uh, many years, like a junior college ka teacher. But my dad never used his science category ever. And both of them moved to like media or art related uh, jobs. And uh, they basically these days never ever used any of the knowledge which they have learned in their degrees. Okay. Uh, they, the, the, I guess their degrees did instill them in, instill in them a kind of general scientific scientific temper. 
so they, they they are like not orthodox uh, in any any particular way okay. um, so the, the, the education definitely helped them but they do not use their degrees in their own uh, jobs uh, these days and um, they kind of had like similar expectations ki ha theek hai bachcha science ka degrees kar raha hai but like his talents seem to be more oriented towards literature or something oh. creative so i always wanted to wanted me to take up uh, a course or a degree which is more oriented towards something more um, like humanities related like yeah, yeah. So. yeah 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 okay so they always saw you as a curious yeah. kid and uh, they thought that your curiosity would suit it to something yes. like literature and arts yes 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 yeah. and do you feel the same like um, if you want a scientist if you want a physicist because mm-hmm. you spent seven more than seven years yeah. beginning from uh, taking science after 10th yeah. and now you're completed masters in astrophysics yeah yeah, yeah. if not physics mm-hmm. do you really think you do good as a literature person yes and i, I and i no yes yes as in yes as in i would have enjoyed doing it not as in, okay. i i don't know if i would have would have been a, a good per, good person who is like into literature and stuff i, I don't know what do you call a literary artist or writer or something yeah. um because i never got a proper opportunity to try that out and i did want to so okay. every step of the way somewhere in the back of my mind i've always had this thought of okay i uh, a huge chunk of my inspiration to get into science in the first place was through science fiction Uh, ah yes and i always wanted the time and the mental headspace to you know get into science fiction write some of my own stuff uh, in bsc jab thoda time rehta tha i used to like you know participate in competitions and do fairly well in those competitions as well um writing competitions science fiction writing competitions yeah. uh, but baad mein jab especially towards the end of bsc and beech ka mm-hmm. jab masters ka cheeze start hua um no time at all like, you barely get time to breathe uh, it's very <laughs> unfortunate in 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 the future though like I do want to pursue more writing. I do want to more uh, writing as in more uh, science communication. Science communication as well as like fiction writing. Like it has been uh, something which has been very very close to my heart. Um and I have not been able to, you know, find time for it. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like as a science person who has completed your masters in mm-hmm. physics, you have more knowledge into the actual science. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you'll be able to make science fiction more believable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let, let's see let's see how that goes if uh, every every single person who wants to write yeah. feels that they'll end up being a very very good writer <laughs> most of, most times the writing is pretty shit when it starts up it takes like a lot of practice to you know uh, write like a fairly yeah, decent because piece. Uh, when you uh, already know the science facts yeah. you know when some people ki sach ke aas paas ka jhoot uh-huh. zyada believable hota hai uh-huh. let, let's put that to test <laughs> i i i am skeptical about myself right now so let's see <laughs> I, I, I'm 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 very happy that you you have such great faith in me. I don't have a, I don't have so much faith in myself. Let's see. Next part. Let's go to the actual science part. Sure. So now you have completed your masters in astrophysics, and yeah. to complete that, uh, you had to do a four month, five month uh, research, and your research topic was detecting gravitational waves mm-hmm. using uh, pulsar timing arrays. Yep. So what is it? How does it work? So, okay, so let's just start with something okay. very, very basic. Okay. So, what are what are gravitational waves? So, everything which has mass attracts everything else which has all which also has mass. Yes. You know, Newton's universal law of gravitation. Einstein's insight into this was uh, very simply put that the communication between two these two masses is not in- instantaneous. So for example, if I have a bo- if I have two balls in my hand, one in my right hand, one in my left hand. and they are clearly mutually attracting each other with some very tiny tiny amount of force if i move the ball in my left hand say move it away from the right uh, ha- hand wala ball uh, the information that the ball has moved and other gravitational attraction has weakened takes some time to be communicated between those two balls yes and that information is communicated at the speed of light uh, that is basically einstein's insight into gravity like put in a very very simple way and this delay in the the way the information reaches from one object to the other 
can basically be uh, summarized in equation as a wave. The wave which can which can carry energy in this particular case is called a, a gravitational wave. An analogy to this in electronic in 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 electrodynamics uh, is a moving charge. Uh, if we have a moving charge uh, which has a field, and if we move elect- electric charge, uh, say we accelerate accelerate the electric yeah. charge, it radiates a, 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 a light. So in a similar way, in gravitation, the charge equivalent is mass, and we if we ever accelerate a massive object, it emits gravitational waves. The analogy is the same. Accelerating charge emits and electromagnetic waves, and accelerating mass emits gravitational waves. So the mass needs to be accelerated. Yes. Okay. In some way, it, it it has to change its direction or it has to change its velocity or both. So now it's it it begs the question: Ki why do we feel these gravitational waves or not? I mean, light to dikta hai bhai, par gravitational waves dikte hai, kyun nahi dikte hai? So, uh, everything which has mass emits gravitational waves when they're accelerated. Okay. But, the amplitude is very, very, very small. It's, it's extremely tiny. Okay. So, when when I move these tiny balls, the gravitational waves which are emanated from these balls, are, unka amplitude itna kam hoga, that you won't even feel them. There's, it will take like an extraordinarily sensitive detector to uh, ever detect these. So, to detect gravitational waves, you need things which are like extremely massive. Uh, okay. And some of the most massive things in the universe are black holes. And that is why the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, was able to detect gravitational waves from colliding black holes in 2015, was the first detection, I think. When something as big as a black hole somewhere off in some other galaxy basically interacts with another black hole, Mm -hmm. this particular interaction, the change in uh, the mass mass ratio, not, 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 not in the mass of the object. It's basically both of them are... The pair of the black holes are basically not in a place where their distribution of masses is not symmetric. So it's not a sphere, you see. Okay. When when the, the, the two two masses, one of them might be larger, one of them might be smaller, um, kind of generate like a mass asymmetry in, in, in space-time, which lets them accelerate. Because, you know, one is attracting the other and one kind of chasing the other uh, other yes. kind of object. We won't get into like the celestial mechanics here. I'm trying to keep it very, very simple. Okay. Just attracting each other and kind of chasing each other uh, in their own orbit. And this mass asymmetry and the chase due to that generates gravitational waves. Uh, you don't need asymmetric masses. Symmetric masses can also uh, 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 create, create gravitational, gravitational waves. waves. Um, and these gravitational waves are detected right now. The only uh, tool that we have yes. to detect these gravitational waves is LIGO. Is LIGO, yeah. And LIGO can detect gravitational waves from stellar mass black holes. Uh, what this means is black holes which might be of uh, one solar mass to about, say, a few hundred solar masses. few hundred is also, like, okay. like the upper limit. It's usually about 150 tak they expect to detect uh, gravitational waves from uh, from one, two, is one, two solar masses. Usually, it's from three, three solar masses to, say, uh, the I think the most heaviest till date is, like, 87 uh, uh, among the pair. So, even for LIGO right now, yeah. you need to have a really massive object yes. in that, uh, that gravitational wave to, yes. for it to be detected. Yes. And uh, I think LIGO itself is a really sensitive... It is very sensitive. Yeah. Can you give a brief about what LIGO is and how it works. Sure. Uh, definitely something which I have like read about before and I kind of also volunteered with LIGO for, for their science communication stuff uh, some time ago. So I can I can tell you a bit, bit about LIGO. So the way LIGO works is imagine two arm lengths which are perpendicular to each other at say 90 degrees. Uh, at end of each arm they have two mirrors and where the arms intersect uh, they have two lasers which are fired perpendicular along those little arms and these lasers bounce off mirrors and come back at a particular point and these lasers are kept thoda sa out of phase they, they just don't align really well the one okay. one kind of one 
one beam kind of uh, arrives thoda sa late and one one beam arrives say at a calibrated time okay and uh, the expectation is if a gravitational wave passes by a gravitational wave is stretching and squeezing of space so literal space and time yeah. stretch and squeeze as a gravitational wave passes by the expectation is as it passes by these arms which are perpendicular to each other these arms will be stretched and squeezed and the length of the laser beam then is kind of reduced the beam has to travel less so the beam which is coming back at the point where these two beams meet yeah. comes back later or earlier and this difference in the phase can be picked up by a detector and this difference in phase then will kind of look like a waveform or it might look like uh, a, 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 it might have a particular structure which you might expect from a particular kind of interaction and, and then looking at the structure we can then figure out figure the kind out of interaction what kind of interaction it was they use like very advanced uh, algorithms co- uh, cross matching algorithms to figure out uh, what kind of uh, wave it was uh, what kind of binary it was it also tells you some information about their mass tells you the inter- uh, information about how far away were the, the black holes were how far away they were um from so which direction the gravitational general direction yes uh, came to us so there are, currently there are two ligo detectors and there's one called virgo in europe and these three detectors can kind of pinpoint in general in which area of the sky the gravitational wave is coming from it's not very accurate but you can generalize the general location to like a i i don't uh, know how, how many arc minutes but yeah they can localize it to like a fairly uh, accurate spot in the sky. so what we expect is if a black hole bind, if if there's a black hole neutron star merger um as the neutron star approaches the black hole Uh, we expect that the tidal forces will be so strong the same way say the uh, the, uh, the moon and the sun kind of pull the earth water thoda sa upar niche due to their gravitational interactions and we get tides uh, similarly uh, when the neutron star comes very very close to the black hole the tidal forces will be so strong that the neutron star will essentially be ripped apart yeah. as it is consumed by the black hole and they become like a larger black hole together during this ripping apart process we expect some high energy signatures to be found via em electromagnetic waves along with the gravitational waves uh, and these will be uh, in the x rays and gamma rays for the most part you might even later get like a radio uh, afterglow uh, in the in the radio energy range so we do expect that to happen with a black hole neutron star interaction we still haven't seen one i might be wrong abhi bhi bada sa asterisk yahan pe bada sa asterisk on the whole thing by the way because i am not an expert in uh, ligo or you're talking about ligo because it's really yeah. cool because um, ligo is right now one of the tools that helps us dictate the gravitational waves but what you have worked on mm. the pulsar timing arrays mm. it can also be another uh, reliable tool uh, to detect uh, the gravitational waves yes so uh, so let's talk about frequencies for a bit frequency as a concept so um, so sure here's yeah. a question for you because i have talked a lot now. okay so how do you define frequency when i think of frequency i think of rotation okay uh, if uh, if you have a moving object a circularly moving object mm-hmm. the amount of time it moves in a fixed frame of fixed time frame of time is a frequency so in case of this we can say frequency as the uh, the rate at which an event occurs yep. in a fixed frame yeah, of yeah, time yeah, sure. is frequency yeah so if something is occurring a lot in say 1 second yeah. uh say if something happens say 100 times a second you maybe you might get it 100 hertz ka frequency hai uska if it is happening a thousand times a second we we might say it has a thousand hertz ka frequency so uh the ligo ka frequency range of the gravitational oscillation is in the hearing range of uh, range of you for the most part okay so it is from a few hundred to a few thousand i might be wrong again but as as this yahan pe it's definitely in the few hundreds if i'm not wrong okay um and uh, ligo can only detect that much but there are other objects in the universe which might emit gravitational waves which are at frequencies which are much higher than that and ligo won't be able to detect that because ligo's arm length and the technology basically makes it you know uh, makes it 
sensitive only to that particular yeah, particular range, range of light can detect exactly uh, the same way our, our human eyes can detect only the visible part of the spectrum for the most part and uh, say bees perhaps can detect some ultraviolet uh, part oh, of the yeah. spectrum and radio telescopes sorry we can detect the radio radio uh, part, part of the spectrum uh, ligo can only see the few hundred hertz uh, part of the spectrum uh, please correct me in the aftermath if it's not just few hundred and thoda zyada hoga to i might be wrong okay so if there are black holes which are bigger than these few uh, few tens of solar masses a few hundreds of solar masses uh, basically ligo won't be able to detect them. what the radiation waves which is too strong for that no the, the 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 wavelengths will be much larger they won't be strong per se the way, the amplitude uh, the wavelength will just be larger than what Very large, what, yeah. what the particular um detector can detect so there are two experiments which are currently being developed to detect gravitational waves which are of longer wavelengths uh, than what ligo can detect uh, one of them is called lisa it's exact it's quite like ligo it's an interferometer basically which is going to be in space three satellites which are going to basically follow earth each of them is also going to have a laser fi- fi- firing a laser at the other satellite and satellite uh, satellite's arm and the distance between the two satellites basically will reduce and increase as the gravity wave passes by it will be detected so it's like the actual structure of ligo but in space but in space there there's three satellites so there are going to be three different beams of light being exchanged so it's way more complex than ligo uh, it way more sensitive as well so it, it it is expected to pick up gravitational waves from objects which are in 10 raised to 6 solar masses mass range which are expected to be like uh, black holes at the center of small smallish and close by galaxies when galaxies merge galaxies are expected to have like black holes in the center of them yeah. so when these galaxies merge it is expected that these black holes also merge but we do not know how these black holes are brought together so uh, it's a big mystery it's called the final parsec problem in astrophysics final parsec problem yeah. wow so the, the 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 problem is such that okay sure gravitational waves can decay orbits but to make gravitational waves decay orbits the black holes have to be really really close to each other so for example if 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 you have two black holes uh, one in in its own galactic center and if these two galaxies are very very far away and they are on a merger all apart let's say the orbital decay between these two galaxies is not caused because of gravitational waves till they get really really close to each other oh hoga thoda sa but what orbit decay itna chhota hoga it will take more than the age of the universe for these two yeah. black holes to merge okay till they are brought really close to each other uske baad gravitational wave uh, takes priority in the way the gravitational uh, wave emission decays the orbit faster than anything else can so the the gravitational waves emission will accelerate the decay of the orbit when they get really really close to each okay. other so the question is what then brings these two gl- uh, black holes together so if the orbits have to decay there has to be maybe some kind of friction dynamical friction which might be brought about by stars in the galaxy interacting with each other there might be tidal forces in the circumbinary disk between the supermassive black holes there could be many many things which could cause the orbit to decay to a distance of these two black holes where actually gravitational waves could take precedent and actually make the final step of merger which might happen and we do not we have some answers to what might cause this orbital decay to the black holes to, to, to bring these two black holes from two different galaxies very really close to each other but we do not have a definitive answer ki process kya hai step by step ye pehle hota hai ye baad mein hota hai ye baad mein hota hai we do not know the exact process of what brings these two black holes uh, close together and why is it called the final parsec because at a distance of about a parsec to a few parsecs depending on the mass of the black hole the gravitational wave interaction kicks so the final parsec problem is what brings these two black holes together till the distance of the uh, of the final parsec so this is called a final parsec problem and lisa are perhaps going to help us answer these particular questions about 
what are the rates of mergers of supermarket blackouts so uh, kind of an interesting thing that is actually really interesting it, it is it is so uh, you have to figure out what is causing it. as you said it can be some kind of friction from stars dynamical friction yes dynamical friction. what dynamical. is dynamical okay, i am not an expert in like orbital mechanics of galaxies but it is basically a galaxy has like millions of millions of stars yes and these orbits interact with uh, the orbit of one star interacts with the orbit of the other star yes. i might be completely wrong here again be astics astics yes. yeah. i learned this in the galactic dynamics course but oh, yes. i we forgotten about it clearly <laughs> yeah. after uh, 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 a year of, taking, of uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> taking the course completely forgot about what it, it, it exactly was. so let's let just keep it at like uh, the 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 gravitational interaction between multiple stars together uh, can Uh, can be such that or uh, or orbits can decay. I guess we'll just keep it at that. It, it so might act like those, those stars interact. So we have two black holes uh, in the center of galaxies, yeah. and when they are coming close to each other, the orbits of stars in around each of them, around, yes. around each of them will yes. cause some kind of a, a perturbation, perturbation, yeah. which will help them come close to each other yes. to their final. But but, but and dynamical friction is not just for these black holes. Dynamical friction is a thing which happens in galaxies in general. Okay. So even if you don't have like black holes in center in the center. Uh, other parts of the galaxy will be affected by these stars interactions okay. so dynamical friction can be a, it, it's like a general phenomena which happens in galactic dynamics in, uh, for certain yeah. so coming back to yes uh, pulsar timing arrays yeah finally so yes. what are what are pulsar timing arrays so these were massive black holes 10 raised to 6 solar masses one yes we expect that ancient very old galaxies and very old uh, supermassive black holes to be of the uh, to be of mass ranges 10 raised to 8 to 10 raised to 9 So these supermassive black holes, as we call them, are between 10 raised to 6 to 10 raised to 9, and the uh, the the more massive range lies between like I, I guess 10 raised to 8 to 10 raised to uh, 9, so maybe even 10. Some speculation goes to 10 as well. Solar masses, gigantic black holes, uh, black holes which we expect to see in very high redshift galaxies, as in galaxies which are very very far away from each other. Maybe some of the first ever galaxies formed in our universe might be might have been these. galaxies which might host these very very large supermassive black holes and these black holes when they interact with each other we expect the frequency of these gravitational waves to be in the nanohertz region nanohertz uh, nanohertz big 10 to the minus 9 minus 1 that's very small. very very tiny huge wavelengths wavelengths spanning many 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 light years gigantic gravitational waves so to detect them you basically need a system which is also as big as a galaxy Um, so, but how well? Okay, Lisa, you can build to detect things which are on like massive black holes. How will you get like a detector which is basically as large on the scales comparable to a galaxy? Yeah, because if the wavelength itself is like light, light years, years exactly, wide, exactly, you need. We may be in a gravitational wave right. right now, and we don't won't be able to detect it exactly. Yes. So, so okay. So let's keep the problem there. Okay. Let's okay. Just, let's let's take a, put like a pins problem and get to a thought as a thought as a tangent. Okay. I mean, merge both of these points together to come to uh, our really creative solution, which was actually discovered, uh, which was actually thought about back in the seventies by okay. some scientists. So we talked about neutron stars, which are these dead cores of uh, of like giant stars, uh, which have basically burnt out all of the fuel and are it like degenerate stars. They're very very compact, very very massive. Uh, uh, so imagine like a stars or a couple of stars worth of mass compressed in like uh, a diameter which is like ten to seventeen kilometers. Fun fact. Thor's hammer is supposed to be made from <laughs> matter from a neutron star. <laughs> yeah, supposed to be. I, 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 yeah, that's why it's supposed to be that heavy. And, uh, yes. <laughs> so, um, some of these neutron stars, especially neutron stars which not are not accreting, well, all of all neutron stars basically, uh, because of the law of conservation of charge, all the all the charge from the mass stars, stellar stellar mass worths of mass 
has to still be preserved in that little tiny tiny area. Basically, neutron stars, because of the law of condensation of charge, have a whole bunch of charge packed in a very, very small area. That means it has very, 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 very strong magnetic fields in like a very, very small area. So neutron stars are some of the most strongest magnets out yeah. there in, uh, out there in the universe. And various uh, radiative processes in these magnetospheres and from inside of the star and the magnetospheres of the, of, of the neutron star basically lets it be very, very bright in the radio region along its poles, all along its magnetic poles. So in neutron stars, the same way as the Earth has, the magnetic poles and the rotational axis of rotation don't line up. Okay. So the, the, the star, as Earth does, rotates on one axis and its magnetic poles, which are not aligned, uh, rotate on, Some uh, other axis. On, 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 on a different axis. So when a neutron star rotates around its axis, it two poles, which are like very, very bright in radio light, basically act like a sweeping lighthouse, which is like moving around, uh, which, which kind of rotates around in space. And if you are in the line of sight of one of these beams, it will basically look like a blip or a pulse coming towards you. Uh, and such neutron stars, which we see as these pulsating objects, radio light, are what we call it as pulsars. The, the discovery of pulsars is its own story in which the PhD student uh, Jocelyn Bell was not given a Nobel Prize while the, the PhD supervisor was. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's its own very, very interesting story. And you should look up what exactly happened then. Pulsars were discovered, I guess, more than, uh, more than about 50 years ago now. And because they are neutron stars, which can be so regularly be observed with radio uh, telescopes, have led to like a whole bunch of different discoveries in astrophysics. Uh, so, so even before pulsars were used as pulsar timing arrays, they were used to detect gravitational waves, but not gravitational waves in the 10 raised to minus 9 hertz solar region, but gravitational waves from two neutron stars decaying in the orbit. So the first indirect detection of gravitational waves, even before LIGO, LIGO was a direct detection, was um, a, a pulsar binary called the called the Hulson-Taylor pulsar. In in the 70s, uh, a, a pulsar binary was discovered. So two pulsars rotating uh, have, have an orbit around each other in a binary. And these two physicists, Charles and Taylor, they made continuous radio observations of these two pulsars. Uh, they, they, they kind of basically observed the pulsar for a very, very long time. And they kind of figured out how the pulsar orbit is decaying. And the orbit decay, the pulsars are basically, every single rotation, its orbit was a little as they went around each other. They basically corresponded this decay in its orbit equivalent to the amount of gravitational wave emission it the, if, because they were not detecting gravitational waves, right? So what they calculated was, if the Hulson-Taylor binary pulsar is emitting gravitational waves, uska orbit kitna decay hona chahiye. They kind of calculated that and then they measured the Hulson-Taylor binary pulsar and they saw that, oh wait, the binary pulsar is decaying in the exact same manner, uh, the orbit is decaying, literally, uh, not it was not linear, but point to point in the same way what they predicted. So that is that, that was the Hulson-Taylor, uh, Hulson-Taylor binary okay. pulsar. So pulsars have like a rich history uh, in gravitational wave physics in the first place. They have been used for stuff like this. Um, but our particular use for pulsars is using pulsars as very, very accurate clocks. So because pulsars rotate around this, their axis and they are very, very bright in radio light and you can detect these pulses, uh, these pulses are extremely periodic. You can predict when the next pulse is going to be if you have like a set of pulses recorded before. And because you can record the next, or you can expect when the next pulse is coming, you can essentially use pulsars as very, very accurate clocks. Well, there are a special kind of a pulsar called millisecond pulsars, as the name suggests. The rotational frequency is like, you know, they rotate, uh, one rotation is finished in about a millisecond. Or so. so these millisecond pulsars are exceptionally stable, as in the rotational frequency absolutely does not change, more so than other pulsars do. 
they also show very low glitchy behavior so what are these glitches glitches are like internal changes in a pulsar which might cause the rotation frequency of the pulsar to change so millisecond pulsars show very little of these glitches so we can essentially use millisecond pulsars as very 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 accurate clock because they are very very accurate clocks we can use them to detect gravitational waves because gravitational waves are the stretching and squeezing of space and time if a gravitational wave is passing by uh, one millisecond a millisecond pulsar its pulse time of arrival to a telescope will either be delayed or you know or, well, it might reach faster and this change in the time of arrival of of these pulses can be characterized as a gravitational wave being detected and that is what we expect to do with pulsar timing arrays so what exactly are pulsar timing arrays are radio telescopes here on earth for example our group the indian pulsar timing array which is operated from the national center for radio astrophysics in pune uses the giant meter wave radio telescope which is an excellent very very sensitive telescope here in india uh, to keep track of a set of pulsars uh, spread all across the galaxy and uh, every observing cycle for say about of 20 to 30 days or maybe more uh, every single year we keep track of these pulsars we observe these pulsars on those nights of observation and we basically time them and see what the rotation frequency is how the pulses are coming the time of arrival so on and so forth kind of record this data and because these rotation waves have a light years ka scale it might it could have detect one i guess a wavelength of it might take months so you know you you can have a cadence which is between days and months to detect the entire wave Uh, gravitational waves if we ever detect we haven't detected gravitational waves yet it's an expectation that we might detect these gravitational waves very very soon using these pulsar timing arrays so what do we expect to detect in the coming future and some uh, other groups like nanograv which is like the pta for north america and have already claimed that they might be starting to detect gravitational waves thoda sa kid the signal mil raha hai they call it call it a red noise process in their own in, in their datasets uh what they expect to detect at this moment at least is not gravitational waves from individual binaries but something called as the gravitational wave background so because there are a thou- there are like many many i i don't even know the exact number there might be many many of these uh, black hole binaries all over the universe emitting these gravitational waves uh, these gravitational waves are reaching us in an incoherent and uncorrelated background so all of these gravitational waves overlapping on top of each other which will kind of make like a noise flow like a baseline uh, gravitational wave background which could be detected everywhere the same way we have the cosmic microwave yes. background we we also have the well gravitational, gravitational wave, wave background, background for all its like a, a swimming pool full of people like swimming pool full of people making all these ripples, all these on, ripples on 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 a pool yeah on the pool so all the ripples are all different mm-hmm. uh, gravitational waves but because they yeah. are all interacting with each other so we the, just see noise exactly but you still can have an amplitude which could be detected you know yes. you, you still have a general amplitude so what we expect to detect in the near future is this gravitational wave background and as our experiments become more and more sensitive especially towards the end of this decade we expect the, the square kilometer array to come online and a square kilometer array is going to be a radio telescope with basically a surface collecting area of about a square kilometer going to be very very sensitive is going to join the pulsar timing array effort and there's a part of the square kilometer experiment we are funding it partially along along with many other countries we expect to not only detect the background and characterize the background really really well but also to detect, detect individual binaries of the possible black holes going around each other and uh, you know on on a merger orbit once you subtract the noise once once you subtract the noise when once you make these experiments very very sensitive so 
in these single binaries, in these, in these individual binaries, which we expect to detect like a decade later, you have all kinds of orbits. You have orbits which are circular, you know, just mm-hmm. perfectly circular orbits going, like two giant supernovas of black holes just going around like a circle and decaying slowly. You might have eccentric orbit, like, like elliptical eccentric orbits in which like, eccentricity is very high and there's like a beautiful elliptical loop which one smaller bla- uh, black hole is kind of making around a larger black hole if you keep the larger black hole at focus. You can have parabolic orbits uh, when you, where you like have a slingshot which is unbound and you have hyperbolic orbits which is basically an unbound orbit in which the, so the pair regains more uh, energy uh, as it leaves. So, till date, for supermassive black holes, for these binaries to be detected, we need to figure out how these signals will look like in the pulsar timing array dataset. So, the pulsar timing array datasets, as, as I basically said, are these graphs in which we basically have kept time ki a pulse kab hai hamare paas, from these various pulsars. And if a gravitation wave is passing by, there will be a characteristic change in the way these pulses arrive and we will be, be able to tell ki what kind of a binary it is. So, the characteristic change in the shape of the time of arrival curve, which we'll eventually have, will correspond to different kind of orbits. So, till date, we have a good characterization of how circular orbits will look like in the PTA dataset of how eccentric orbits will look like when observed by PTAs, of how parabolic orbits will look like uh, when detected by PTAs. But till date, we do not have a prescription or we did not have a prescription of how hyperbolic orbits emit gravitational waves and how these uh, gravitational waves from hyperbolic orbits interacting with pulsars will look like in the pulsar timing array data set. Enter the problem given to be my by guide, uh, Professor Achamvidu Gopakuma from Tatan Institute of Fundamental Research. He suggested that I, with the help of our collaborators, work on this particular problem for my master's thesis. So figuring out how yeah. gravitational waves are produced by hyperbolic orbits. Not how they're produced, we know how they're produced. Okay. Of how these gravitational waves produced from hyperbolic orbits interact with, pulsa- with, with pulsar. pulsars and how they will look in the pulsar timing or data so give, like, give you a signature yep. basically yep. So, okay. a signature so if we of see this uh, pattern in the change in the pulsar timing yes. that means that it's coming from a hyperbolic exactly. orbit precisely so that is kind of what I worked on um, okay. I I kind of I had to first understand how hyperbolic orbits work in the relativistic sense because these are not Newtonian objects these are, these are objects moving very, very very rapidly they are black holes the orbit has to be relativistically accurate so I had to use something called as the post-Newtonian approximation of general relativity which is a way to uh, solve dynamical problems in uh, in GR GR is a notoriously non-linear theory <laughs> and it's a very very uh, it's very hard to solve basically the two-body problem moving objects in GR. So you have to use, so there are a lot of methods people use, but we used something called as the post-Newtonian approximation. It's a tried and tested method. Uh, the first expectation of the precession of Mercury done by Einstein was used by something akin to the post-Newtonian approximation as well. So we basically uh, used the post-Newtonian approximation. I kind of tried to develop a prescription in which I tried to figure out how the hyperbolic orbits evolve relativistically using the one P, uh, the, the post-Newtonian method. Then, calculated how the gravitational wave from this post-Newtonian hyperbolic orbit will look like. This work was already done by my guide. I just reproduced that work for my own understanding. And once this was done, the novel effort in the entire project was how these gravitational waves interact with pulsars and what the signature is going to be. So in that particular calculation, I had to input equations of where the, the position of the pulsar, where the pulsar is going to be in the sky, the positions of where the gravitational wave source is going to be. And then finally, how the gravitational wave interacts with the pulsar. So when, when when you kind of put all these equations together in a particular order, uh, you, you I kind of developed a prescription like an algorithm of how to go for, go ahead and 
you know end up with something what we called as pulse timing or residuals which is the signature which we expect to be detected uh-huh. in the radius wave so this work was largely based on uh, one of my colleagues work abhimanyu susubanan who worked on this exact same problem but for highly eccentric orbits a closed bound orbit so he had already done this work so i basically did this in his footsteps and i came up with a prescription the prescription had some errors as we recently found out even after my thesis was you know finished but you are still continuing your work yeah, yeah my my my, my work my work still continues the the prescription had some issues uh, even after my thesis was published we did not catch those uh, issues in my thesis but later on we did we are still working on that we are still working on making that prescription more and more accurate the project is now taken up by a different colleague of mine subhajit dandapat and prerna rana and i all three of us are currently working on tackling this particular problem uh, and making this prescription more accurate improving the way we integrate improving the way we uh, basically present and there there were some bugs we are kind of cleaning off those bugs and once all of this is done we'll be able to you know uh, publish this as a paper uh, hopefully sometime early in 2022 Oh wow! So yeah, that is what my thesis was. So you're still on it. You're I'm still, still working on it. On I'm it. still, I'm still working on it. Yeah. And how long has it been? The four-month project has now extended to almost a year. Almost a year, you know. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's it's almost been like exactly a year. It will be exactly a year next month since oh, wow. I started working on project. Yeah. So apart from the entire personal timing arrays, I think that I have a few questions. Sure. What is your long-term vision? What do you want to achieve? Like your main vision right now is to complete your paper, sure. which will be published in the next year. Yeah, and then what? Uh, so me personally, in the in the near short term, I'm looking for PhD positions in many different kinds of astrophysical areas, and not just in gravitational waves or pulsar timing. I have worked on other things in the past, uh, in radio astronomy, and also in like simulations. I love hydrodynamics, fluid simulations of objects and so on. All interesting. I love doing mm-hmm. that. So anything of that sort, I'm looking for PhD positions. All of these various fields. I well, it'll be nice if I am able to become like a full-time academic. Very hard to do, but who knows? I want to take that shot. Um, on the side of, regardless of what happens, I want to like be involved in science communication more and more. Outreach activities uh, is some are, are something which is very close to my heart. I strongly believe that scientists should be involved in outreach uh, and communicating things what they do, communicating things they do to their own communities in like an accessible way, so that. people understand where their uh, tax dollars are going to <laughs> yes uh, and also in general to make people curious about the world around them. because in the end when all the all the when all the material needs are met uh, curiosity yeah. is like if i may the if i may use the word very very cautiously curiosity can be a very special experience in a way oh, yes. in which especially like it satisfies you it kind of makes you feel that the time you're spending is kind of worth it and so as you way. said uh, as you said that uh, scientists should be more involved in science communication yeah. and you also want to be a part of academia hopefully let's hopefully. Yeah. what are the things according to you in academia that require improvement i'll focus this on indian academia i am closely associated with it and yes. eventually might end up in it uh, <laughs> the biggest thing which i not which i have noticed apart from the lack of funding apart from weird corruption mm-hmm. apart from the very little uh, very little, little number of scholarships which are available uh, it is the way in which uh, scientists are chosen for various positions which are out there the methods in our country due to the function of the number of institutes we have and the function of people who want to get into the end up becoming very dull and very repetitive being entrance exams 
at every single yeah, level of right. academia every single level of academia you have exams for everything you have you e- have to give entrance exams yes there are criteria and also yes. because there is such a big difference in the number of people who actually attempt the exam yeah. and the seats which are available yes exactly there are like 6 lakh 7 lakh people who give the exam and exactly. we have how many seats? 100 100 we have 100 seats yes. out of all of the 6 lakh people that give the exams yeah. so wow so the, so because of this we, i'm not saying this is a bad system or system is problematic the thing is you are selecting for a very particular kind of side yeah uh, which is not a bad thing a which is not a bad thing you it, it is completely understandable to have, for a scientist to have those particular kind of analytic skills in which they are able to solve problems in a given amount of time so on but that is not research as as you just well very pointedly noticed that i have been working on this little tiny project for over yeah. a year so the, the the scales at which problems are solved in research they are not on the time scale of couple of minutes ka mcq solving <laughs> uh it, it requires different kind of skills which are not at all cultivated in uh, in our students and even if they are those students might not get a good opportunity to be selected for all these research programs which are out there phd programs or other research programs which are out there, which is very very sad for all intents and purposes india right now is selecting for a very very monotonous kind of a scientist i know so many people around me who are boundlessly curious and are boundlessly talented in ways other than giving entrance exams and they are good researchers they are amazing researchers and they have done amazing projects but if they want to take up a phd position in india or even if they want to take up a masters position in india they have to crack these entrance exams and these entrance exams cannot evaluate their projects or they cannot evaluate their creativity which they have spent years honing and understanding so you know that is something which we need to work on we need to work on having alternative ways of evaluating people who have research experience and are not just good in physics they should be good in physics of course they should be they there should be like a baseline which they need to understand and got to get to the place where they are but that baseline should be met by the the bsc and the msc exams which they are giving so once the the evaluation pattern of the way the students are evaluated at the bsc and the msc level that should be a good enough cut off if if and when those courses are improved mm-hmm. that should be like a good enough cut off for the research institutes to understand the the basic caliber of the student after that, that this person is capable capable and after that a whole bunch of the selection should be based on how good of a problem solving the student how uh, much problem. of a creative thinker creative this person thinking is when it comes to research problem solving because uh, also the next question mm-hmm. joins into it because mm-hmm. research isn't always uh, calculations and equations yeah, and uh, running a simulation and getting the answer yeah 9 out of 10 times mm-hmm. you won't get the answer yeah if you're running a simulation you won't just run the simulation and you get ah this is the answer this is the graph and then you publish it yeah you have to solve a million bugs you have to solve a million syntax errors yes <laughs> then you get the actual you have answer. to stop yourself from being depressed that it isn't working <laughs> it is an important factor yes so research is not always as they show in the movies mm-hmm. but sometimes research does get really boring yeah. as we talked about that this one simple research of figuring out the hyperbolic orbits it, it's almost going to be one year now yes multiple so, people working on it and also multiple people working yeah. on it is going to be more than one year now yes so there must be times during the research when things are getting we really slow down yeah. they're getting really boring yeah. so are there any problems that you face where the research becomes a bit too monotonous or too draggy and what are the things that you do to keep yourself motivated or keep yourself inspired to keep going of of course it happens it is happened not just in this project and some of the previous projects i have been involved in it happened back then as well uh, it especially happens because the goal is 
Sure, when you're doing a master's thesis, especially master's thesis is nothing. Okay, I I am a complete amateur. This is not coming from like an expert's mouth or anything. A master's thesis is nothing. It's like blip. Kuch nahi uska kuch jada value nahi. Compared to large scale things, people work way harder and deal with much harder problems in their life. But again, very subjective from just my perspective. When you're dealing with a problem which is supposed to be a research problem, you know for a fact that the answer is not out. You are supposed mm-hmm. to find the answer for yourself, which can be an exciting thing, which can be its own motivation. It can also be a very very depressing thing. if you get stuck in a particular place and the thing is sometimes if the research problem is in a field which you have you are not acquainted with. i know i knew about gravitational waves before i went to this particular research but i did not i had not sat down and worked out problems of relativity on the scale which i did here i did not set and code as much as the scale i did in this particular project so these these scales these, these scenarios were very very new to me and uh, as any person in a new scenario experiences you kind of feel, feel this weird feeling of maybe you are not capable of doing all of this imposter syndrome jaisa ki maybe i am not you know worth doing all of this this is definitely for people who are much better at maths than me much better at coding than me, much better at physics or science or that that can be and it kind of gnaws at gnaws at you in your own head and uh, it happens to uh, a lot of students it happens to a lot of researchers in general and you kind of feel like giving up as, as you said it does happen what helps you in a situation like what has helped me is um the point where you started this interview mm-hmm. is what helps me the point where you asked me what made you happy as a child when you got into science <laughs> like that 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 kabhi bhi kuch naya seekhne ko milta hai tab you feel like a very you you get you you connect yourself with your own child like self in yes. which you kuch naya seekhne ko mila you solve the smallest of the bug you get that elated feeling it's all over nice fun yes. and science it being such a collaborative effort it being every single problem being you standing on the shoulders of giants as i guess there was some person before you said you always uh, have a feeling of you are contributing to a legacy of peoples of cultures which have come and gone by in the past who have gone through a lot of cultural societal horrors a lot of discrimination because you know scientists were discriminated against back then in uh, all yeah. cultures in all societies scientists were more like uh, witches and wizards yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah sure but, but, It, it does happen. So, the cultural struggle for insights has been a very, very long one. And at times, when you are stuck, it is kind of useful to place yourself in in this grand tapestry of things as a newcomer, as someone who is you know in the shadow of very, very cool things, very, very cool people have done in the past. And it kind of humbles you. You see, okay, you are new, you struggle, you will do it. It's fine. But all of these people did that too. and here you are doing that too and all of them perhaps felt the same way and all of them perhaps were inspired by the sky above them you know maybe they stepped out and looked out at the dark sky and the beautiful stars out there and found solace that even if i don't end up making like a big contribution like einstein did i'm contributing to the understanding of the sky above you which is very very pretty and it has its own value you find your own meaning in that and come back in your room slightly more happier and you work on the problem well, that's basically how like i have dealt with a lot of it and secondly in like a very very more practical sense again especially in astrophysics might not be in other so much in other parts of physics or other parts of science it is extremely collaborative um, oh yes the, like your own research is a part of a lot of people coming yes, together yes exactly so my research group has like a for, has, has 40 people so my project yeah, yeah so my, my group in pt has like 40 different and i i i know i can rely on them they are all not all of them are like good friends of mine but they are like excellent colleagues and i know i can ask them questions i know i can email them at like 3 am in the morning and in a couple of days i will get a reply they will kind of you know help me through the whole problem so not just my collaboration though 
एक एस्ट्रोनॉमी इन जनरल इज साइंस विदाउट बाउंड्रीज टू द फुलस्ट मोर देन एनी अदर फील्ड द टेलीस्कोप विच वी यूज आर ऑफन इन डिफरेंट कंट्रीज द कोलेबरेशन विच वी हैव आर ऑफन अक्रॉस कॉन्टिनेंट्स the best telescopes in the world the gmrt here which is a very good low frequency telescope is used by so many people from all across the world and people don't stop and think ki bhai ye india ka telescope hai main use nahi karega people use it because it's a cool telescope it's a useful yes. telescope the same thing what indian scientists do when they use the hubble space telescope you know it, it is launched by nasa and isa but you know the, if you have a creative uh, creative project to do with hubble the hubble people will let you use hubble for your own science and people won't think nationalities which which they still have a part of course um they still play a role you know we live in a society haha uh, <laughs> they 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 play a role there but the, the the collaborativeness of astronomy also makes you feel that you are a part of a global community trying to tackle problems not just people from the past as i said before but people alive today who are using uh, these tools using these telescopes using these scientific techniques to meet their own goals so that also helps that that general communication and this collaborative effort specifically in astronomy again personal observation and observation of a couple of other better scientists than i am currently who ha- have uh, observed is that on average people in astronomy are generally more humble and friendly ah on average they uh, and that ends up being a very nice thing when you are in trouble of any kind it could be personal trouble it could be uh, scientific trouble it could be a cultural problem you might be facing if you reach out in the astronomical community more than likely there will be someone who will stand by you stand with you and kind of help you out through the whole issue so reaching out to your own friends and reaching out to the astronomical community is always something which you can do and which you should do if you are in this particular field because you will find people who will help you out that's a, that's a lovely part it it is something it apart from what astronomy and astrophysics gives the world which is the knowledge of the sky the stars of celestial objects astronomy and astrophysics is also a social experiment in which people cross cultures can come together to solve huge massive problems together it is like a beacon of hope of what humanity can do together if they you know set an eyes to solve a particular problem and we are going to need that kind of collaboration because we are facing issues like you know climate change in the future we are going to need these global models of collaboration of people getting together and solving and fixing problems together so you know it's it's kind of a beacon of hope the the whole thing and on a very personal level apart from these grand ideas which i am you know vomiting from my mouth um uh, i got enormous support from my own friend in my classmates who being a part of this really friendly astronomical community are like amazing people in their own right who got on discord calls at like 3 am in the morning every single night and chatted and supported each other and cried together and laughed together and made sure that the problems are solved and you know got things done eventually everyone in, my, in our class some of some people are early some people are late everyone was able to finish the thesis and everyone you know did fairly well it, it, it is obviously a spectrum some people were able to do better because they got better guides some people not so much because there are personal issues and issues with guides so on and so forth but we pushed each other through the entire process and we are crossed that border now our master's degree is finished and here we are with all these lessons which we have learned before i think that's uh... a really good point to wrap the podcast sure thank you so much man yeah that was really awesome hope you loved the episode subscribe to our show and see you next saturday